This podcast is brought to you by Primary Intelligence, the leader in win-loss analysis, focused on helping businesses uncover the unique story on how each sales rep can win more deals. Hey everyone, and thanks for joining me on another rousing edition of Sales Intelligence Weekly, brought to you by Primary Intelligence. I'm Ryan Queller. As sales leaders, we are always trying to empower our reps, right? When they win as individuals, you win as an organization. But for B2B businesses, the time your reps spend with your buyers is shrinking, right? We've talked about this. We've mentioned this on previous episodes. But as B2B buyers' journey shifts to this digital experience, it's estimated that your reps only get 5% of that buyer's journey, roughly 5% of that buyer's journey. And in that shortened window of time, they're still expected to build trust, differentiate from competitors, and demonstrate value to close deals at an accelerated rate, right? Everybody wants growth. Can you feel the tension between these two seemingly opposing forces? Can you feel it? This tension exponentially increases pressure and responsibility on sales leaders and coaches to understand where reps need help and where to focus coaching efforts to make an impact, build sales rep confidence, and increase win rates. So how do we do it, right? How do we identify where and how reps need to be coached? This might be the, if not the existential question, one of the existential questions that sales leaders confront on a day-to-day basis. Here to talk about it with me today is founder of ExecVision, Mr. Steve Richards. Steve, welcome to the show. Hey Ryan, yeah, well said. The uh, the uh, coaching, especially with mo- more and more people being remote, is just very, very difficult. Oh my gosh! Right. So uh, we're going to get into all of that here in a second. But before we do, Steve, tell us a little bit about yourselves. Our listeners want to hear about you. Yeah, yeah. Here, here's the short version. Ready? Our family business is septic tanks. So you already know the punchline to the joke. How's business? Uh, and uh, I did not want to be in the septic tank business. You know, although my uncle Jim and my cousin have done well with my grandfather's business that started off. Uh, and what happened with me is I tried to get a job in New York as an investment banker. I couldn't get a job. I went 0 for 22. I didn't even know why I wanted to be an investment banker. All my undergrad business school friends did that. I went into sales. You know, I thought sales was like used cars. And when you, we graduate college, you don't know what that means. Sales, no idea. No idea. B2B sales. What does B2B even mean? I mean, and, um, and in, in the beginning I was failing. This is an important point. It was through my failure where I was working at the corporate executive board at the time. Very, very lucky that I went there. And I was in a, in a room of what we now call SDRs. I was number 89 out of 100. And they literally had a leaderboard. I mean, you know, you can't fake it. <laughs> right there at the bottom. And heard I was going to go on a performance improvement plan. Looked at the top of the board. Looked at the top five names. I said, those five people are my new best friends. And I sat with them because I had 60,000 school loans. And I didn't want to go to the septic tank business, remember? Yep. So I sat with them and I just observed and I just suspended my judgment. I think that's a key part. Number one, suspend your judgment. Number two, test. So I started running tests and experiments and lo and behold, the things I, were do- I was doing naturally, they were not working. I was not one of those natural salespeople. And then the things I learned from other people that were at the top of the board, they did work. They worked a lot better. And I started getting a lot of meetings, so many so that I went to number one out of a hundred. I-, I was there for several months. And then founded an outsourcing company called Voresight Outsourced SDRs. We sold that business after 16 years. Uh, Built a sales training company for the top of the funnel. I still do some prospecting training for some clients. But now really, exec vision 
is a sales technology that's all about using transcription and AI. What's happening in sales calls? Are my reps saying the right stuff that they're supposed to be saying? And if not, how do we help them change behavior? That's the last mile problem is, is if the reps are not doing their calls in an optimal way, how do we change their behavior so that they do them in an optimal way? How do we get our reps better and then and so that they're more successful making more money? And that's kind of passion. That's what winds my clock, Ryan, is I love seeing sales teams as an, as an overall team improve. I'm very passionate about buying and selling now, whereas I didn't know what B2B sales was before. Now it's my like life's work is to see B2B sales teams get better. And I've worked with over 200 businesses and I just love it. I love when you see that everybody gets better. That's exciting. So this is going to be a great conversation, but before we get into the tactical stuff of the how, right? The promise that we've made to our listeners is how do we do these things? How do we get better? How do, okay. But before we do that, let's take a step back, right? We, we've talked about these changes, um, some of the digital transformation, the, the digital shift that's happening, shift happens. Um, there's another pun, right? <laughs> um, so, um, you know, digital shift happens in the pandemic on top of that, you have the pandemic that's caused many companies to work from home. So between the, the buyer's journey becoming more and more digital and the, the way that sales reps interact um, with prospects is becoming, is also becoming more digital as B2B companies start using new technologies such as digital sales rooms to manage their customer relationships. Um, how is this impacting what we're going to get to is how is this impacting your frontline sales reps? But before we do, there's one last piece of information that I want the listeners to understand. There's a bold prediction out there by Gartner. By 2025, about a third of B2B sales cycles will happen in digital sales rooms, okay? And about half of B2B sales orgs will record 75% of conversations with buyers. So all of this change, all of this shift is happening. And your passion, as you said, is helping everyone get better. And I believe like you, everyone can get better. What I want to understand is how will all this change? How will all of this impact these frontline sales reps? Yeah. And, and uh, you know, here's the thing. There's more information for the frontline sales reps than ever before, too. I'm, I've been hearing all of the analysts and, you know, prognications forever and ever and ever that there are going to be fewer and fewer and fewer salespeople. We're just not seeing it happening. Now, at the same time, what we are seeing happening is the job of that sales rep is trickier depending on what you sell, who you sell to, you don't have as many at bats. Um, the margin of error is smaller than it was before. Uh, you know, and it, you know, in terms of what that day-to-day -day looks like for that sales rep, tons of information about buyers and what buyers are doing in their behavior at any given time. There's anything from intent data. There's anything from, you know, kind of competitive understanding of, of where and how they might be looking at other providers in your category. Uh, you've got a lot of information about, you know, as people are moving from company to company to company, um, you know, for example, there's companies that are merging like pipeline signals that are notifying you of that, whereas before that was kind of cloaked and it was a mystery. We wouldn't really hear about a job change until quite a bit down the road. Um, you know, there's, there's a, a lot of things that converge that when you have those conversations, they are critical. So I think that the, the net net of all of it is, is number one, an average salesperson has to be really good at, at taking all these digital signals and all this data that's coming at them and turning it into something meaningful where they can like day in and day out have a habit around, I'm going to go look at this information this way at this time. And then number two, when you got in that bat, when you have a conversation, they're so precious, you got to make the most of it. Mm. Okay. So you use the word tricky. And I think that that word could be 
complex. It could be tension. It could be friction. It's, it's difficult, right? And at the root of all of this is change for the frontline sales rep. But there's somebody else inside, an or, inside most sales organizations, B2B sales organizations that are also being impacted. That's the sales coach. Mm-hmm. How, does these, how do these same changes impact the sales coach? Well, the, the, the sales coach before was, you know, let's say it was an inside sales team pre-pandemic, right? You would hear what they were doing. I mean, when we, when we started Voresight, I'll just tell you a story. Voresight was my outsourced appointment setting business. So we started in 2005, sold in 2021. At any given time, we'd have, uh, you know, in the beginning, five or 10 people uh, for the first several years that were doing outsourced SDR work. work. They're basically cold calling and getting appointments for our clients on an outsourced SDR team. When you've got five or 10 people all sitting in the same room, you know what's going on. You have your finger on the pulse. You know what I mean? Like you're going to be able to drive consistency pretty easily. I put my desk right in the middle of them so I could hear it all. You know what I mean? Someone would get off a call and you kind of be like, what the, what were they Say, where do they go with that? What, where, you know, where did that come from? But you could correct it pretty easily and, and then get people to buy in because they want to make more money, right? Once we got to 25 or 30, it, it much tougher. You know, now you've got these sort of like, you'll, you'll be walking the sales floor and you'll hear something and you're like, where did that come from? But you couldn't catch them all. You couldn't catch all the coachable moments. They were like shooting stars, poof, and they're, they're here, they're gone. And then you're talking about secondhand kind of like, you know, recollection of what happened on that call. Enter call recording. So now coaches are armed with call recording. Better than not having a recording because now they have the game tape. Problem with call recording, you get this big pile of call recordings. Woohoo! So we had, and by the way, in terms of a legal, and there, there are ways to do outbound recording in a compliant manner, either by saying, hey, Ryan, Steve Richard on a recorded line, the reason for the call is blank, which believe it or not, we're actually seeing for our customers that improves conversion rates. It doesn't the quick tangent. It's shocking. Actually, yeah, yeah. Let's, it, let's it'll help, there. it'll help increase your conversion rate. When you say that huh. We're, it's sort of counter, not, not sort of, it's extremely counterintuitive because you're like, heck, if you're going to cold call and say it's on a recorded line, you would think people would just hang up. That's not what happens. Actually. We find that the conversion rate of that connect to a conversation actually goes, has been going up. I've only got three data points. You know, I'd like to see more than that. Like three is in three different companies who have reported this back to me. I like to see more, but nevertheless, there's ways to record in a compliant way. So going back, you can also do it with uh, area codes, have technology. When you call an area code, it just records one side. Scheduled meetings like on Zoom, just announce it's being recorded. I know a lot of people are thinking, how can you do that? You can do it. Um, Going back to the coach. Now the coach has this big pile of call recordings. How am I ever going to surface the coachable moment from just the mess of everything else that's irrelevant? That's not that doesn't matter to me. Another digital problem. That's what exec vision or technology solves for and other people in our category. You know, a lot of people have heard of chorus and gong. So I was like, you know, make sure that people know we are also in that same conversation intelligence category. We focus more on the coaching. So now the coaches have the conversation intelligence. They can measure what's happening in calls. They can, they can, now it becomes a question of how do you use that to actually help the reps get better? This is a challenge. Because yeah. the, the yeah, last this, mile this, problem yeah. is a human problem, Ryan. It's people. It's not digital. Yeah. Preach, my brother. So that, that's, that's really the thing, right? So more data is not the answer, right? More data is just more data. The answer is the identification of those coaching opportunities. So how do we do that? How, you know, Steve, help me here. How do you identify those, those coaching opportunities? Yeah, yeah. Well, that, so there's, there's a step one. A step one is... How do you define what good looks like for your different sales call types? 
And if, if you go to most companies and say, what is a good discovery call? What is a good cold call? What is a good demo? What is a good you know, quarterly business review for a customer success person or an account manager? And you say, what are the five to 10, what we call key behaviors for that call type? And you know, if you go to a discovery call, they're almost always going to say, does the rep ask open-ended questions about the challenges and the pain points and those kinds of things, right? I mean, that's a logical thing to put in discovery. Now, other organizations will then say, well, that's not just enough. Does the rep then attempt to quantify the impact? You know what I mean? So do they try to tie it to something versus other organizations will focus more on qualification. But the idea is that for every call type that you have, you can really distill it down to five to 10 key behaviors. And the way you want to think about it is that sales calls are kind of like jazz. Like you don't, because if you, if you talk to someone and say like, hey, we'll just give them a script, have them read the script. Well, that, that doesn't work in B2B. I mean, this, we're not telemarketers, it's crazy. And at the same time, if we say, well, just let them do whatever they want, just let them wing it. Well, that's not going to be terribly effective in driving consistency, especially if I have like 50 reps, what, what are they all saying? I have no clue. We know that there are you know, behaviors that are optimal. So jazz, you play the notes in the piece and then you get to improvise. So it's like, are the reps hitting the right notes? That's the first and foremost thing. You know what I mean? And a lot of them are simple. Like, do they open a scheduled call, setting some context and agenda? You would, you would think that would be like a universal, like, oh, geez, 100% of scheduled discovery calls or demos must have some kind of an agenda or a purpose statement for the call objective. No. No, no, it's really not very good at all. It's more of like a third. And then things like closing for definitive next steps. Let's close. Hey, Brian, it sounds like we got a lot of alignment here. It sounds like this is a really good fit. How does your calendar look to talk again next week? What has to happen between now and then? What does the mutual action plan look like? So going back to the, you know, the whole point we we're talking about before, you define good in terms of first the scorecard that the coaches will use later. And then secondly, this is where some of the magic comes in, the keyword topic trackers which is there is a vocabulary, there is a language of what good is for these things. So the so pain, let's take like Sandler pain funnel for a minute. A lot of people know Sandler sales yep. training yep. and they teach this thing called the pain funnel. And the pain funnel is basically, I don't have it in front of me, but it's, it's more or less like, you know, it, 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 how big of a problem is it? What have you tried to do, do in the past to, uh, to solve this problem or to, to address this? What's worked or hasn't worked? Who else does it affect? It's like the very kind of specific set of questions you ask to call it the pain funnel. Okay. There is a vocabulary for the pain funnel. We have distilled the vocabulary for the pain funnel into a tracker. So now we can measure did that happen or not? So if we're working with a company that's all in on like Sandler sales training, for example, like we're all in on Sandler, great. Well, you put your reps through the training. Yep. After that, what'd you do? We certified them. Great. Great. How did they do? They all certified, they checked out. Awesome. But now, Ryan, we have this little devil that comes in called the forgetting curve because humans' brains are designed to purge information. Our brains are perfect forgetting machines. And it turns out it's just like a computer. There's the RAM in your computer, your short-term memory, and then there's the long-term memory, the hard drive. Almost like 90% of the stuff we, we take into the computer, the computer will then purge when the, the short-term memory, the RAM gets dumped overnight. Our brains work the same way. It turns out when we're sleeping, we retain a tiny, tiny, tiny portion of what, and it's usually, by the way, around emotionally charged events. If you ask any salesperson, what's the worst loss where you lost a deal? What's the most painful, 
deal you ever lost where you put a lot of work into it and you still lost. They know. If you ask that same salesperson, tell me about the best wing you've ever had, they can't really remember it. They can't really remember the details because that pain really imprints in the brain. Why? Because our brain is designed to say, don't let that happen again. We want to make sure that that never, ever happens again. So why is this significant? Because if our salespeople didn't have this forgetting curve, then when we certified them, they would just do what they learned from the training and they would do it on their calls and things would be hunky-dory. But, but that's Steve, not how humans No, work. I mean, what you're describing never happens. It just never. doesn't happen. Never. So you certify them and then guess what? You're going to go back and listen to them 30 days later. You know what you're going to hear? Or you're going to, or you're going to measure them if you use a conversation intelligence tool. And you know what you're going to see? They're probably not doing the stuff you certified them on because of the forgetting curve. So how do we overcome that? A series of coaching over a period of time. So anyway, step one is define what good looks like because then we have a target. We have a place for the archer to aim. The archer can pull the bow back. The archer can go, there is the target, shoot, and then see how well did you do it hitting the target, right? If we don't define good, we don't have a target. That's like saying, uh, where should I shoot the arrow, boss? I don't know, wherever you want, just sort of shoot it. How do I know if I hit it? Oh, I'll let you know. Uh, don't worry about that. I'll tell you if it's any good. It's, it's preposterous, but that's what most companies do. Most companies have not established these frameworks for what good looks like as the baseline. Now that we have the framework, then we can start to understand how much is this rep deviating from this framework? You know what I mean? Some deviations okay, but too much deviation is a bad thing. That would be like the you know the musician in jazz that just goes off into a different key with the rest of the band on a different key. It wouldn't work out. So okay, so you, you just Brent mentioned a ton of stuff. <laughs> I mean, but I want to I want to focus in on the thing that I think is one of the most difficult, and that is the actual behavior change. Right. right. So, and I love that you went there, right? You're, you're a technology company, but really what I'm hearing you say, you're a behavioral change organization as well, which is phenomenal. Um, the, the marriage of those two things is where, is where it's at. So I want, I want to go deeper here. Yeah. Okay. So defining that framework um, and defining, you know, what good looks like is really important, but you record the call, you find that they're not doing the thing. They, they forget the, the certification, the training that they went through. How can you help reps better internalize the coaching that you give them, right? So you've got the framework, you've identified good, you're recording the calls, you're, how do you help them internalize it? Great question. Okay, so, so this is extremely counterintuitive. People value more what they conclude for themselves than what they're told. It's an axiom I learned from my mentor, Tom Snyder, and it's worth repeating because this will make it very concrete for, for the people listening to this. So people value more what they conclude for themselves than what they're told. Mm. Let's, let's make that practical. Do you know anybody who quit smoking because one of their friends told them to quit smoking? Mm -hmm. I don't. No, no. The only people I know who ever quit smoking, they decided they were going to quit smoking. You know any anti-vaxxers? I, I sure as heck do. Any of those people that eventually decided to get the, the, the shots, you know why? They decided they were going to get the shots. You can, you can talk to them until you're blue in the face. So, so we, the reps have to buy into and believe that they should change behavior. And so the biggest first mistake that coaches make is they end up coaching the wrong parts of the team, the wrong people. They spend too much time with the wrong people. In particular, low performers. So actually, when I was at Corporate Executive Board, I mentioned they had this really good research, the Challenger uh, sale team, which later Challenger became its own company. But 
they, they looked at coaching across a bell curve of performers. You're kind of low performance, average, high. And you would think if they're all getting coaching the same by the same amount of coaching, that all get better by the same amount. They'd all shift by 20%. It's not how it works. The low performers didn't really get much better. The B players got a big shift. And then the A players got a little better, but not a lot because they're kind of maxed out. So where should you put your coaching? The middle 60%. And we want to put our coaching towards people that actually want to change. So if, if you've got people who they, they do not want to change, they don't want to be in a coaching program, and if you're forcing them to be coached, especially call coaching, call coaching is particularly, um, I don't know, galvanized and charged with emotion is what I find, Ryan, because it's, the, it's very visceral. It's like what you are saying on an actual sales call, as opposed to being coached on you know, uh, how you're running your uh, sequences and outreach or your cadences and sales loft. You know what I mean? Like I don't have as much of an emotional attachment to that, but I'm probably gonna have a very strong emotional attachment to how I have a conversation with a prospect or customer. So anyway, we got to get that person to buy in and if they want to change. And if they don't, you know what you should do as a coach? Don't coach them. Walk okay. away. Wait, that, that, that is, okay, yes. So you At least for now. Keep going. <laughs> no, you just you just you just exploded the brains of almost every sales coach and sales leader out there right now that thinks, nah, I can get them all. Like I, I can do this. Help help us understand why. Why walk you away? waste too much time coaching the wrong people. The the, the 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 litmus test of a good coach, I shouldn't say the litmus test, I should say the the measurement, the yardstick of a good coach is not the amount of time that they coach. And for some reason, we've equated the two together. If you go talk to CEOs or you talk to a chief revenue officer and you say, hey, talk to me about your sales managers. You know, talk to me about their coaching. They said, my sales manager should spend more of their time coaching. You hear them say that all the time. Yeah. More of their time coaching. I go, wait a minute. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay, hold on. Then we talk about their salespeople. And they say, my salespeople, in many cases, are not, they don't have a high enough conversion rate or a high enough win rate. So I don't need them to spend more time selling. I need them to take the time that they are selling and be better at it to convert more of them, right? That, that'd be like saying to a major league, for a major league baseball player, they should get more at bats. Well, if I'm a 200 hitter, I got to get a lot more at bats over the course of the season to get to make up those, those hits that I'm missing than if I'm a 300 hitter. So instead, what should you do? Go to the batting cage and become a 300 hitter because if you're a 300 hitter instead of a 200 hitter, over the course of a season, that's a lot more base hits. That's a lot fewer plate appearances. I don't have to get as many at-bats to get the same number of hits, not even close. So with the coaches, the real measurement for a coach is how much business impact did the coach create relative to the time they coached? This is very different. If you look at a lot of our big customers, we got big, 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 big customers, you know, like Intuit's a huge customer, you know, hundreds of coaches. It's not necessarily the person who coaches the most time that has the biggest impact to the business. So that's another thing, Ryan, that we see people who have not done a great job is they coach because they sort of intrinsically think like, boy, we should really be coaching. Like coaching is a good thing. Well, how are you going to measure it? How are you going to measure coaching? They're like, well, we can measure how long it will take. In our system, you can measure the time that the coach coaches. You know what I mean? How much time do they spend coaching in a formal coaching plan or an informal kind of asynchronous, dropping some comments on a call. You know, we can measure all those things and that's, that's all hunky-dory, but really what I want to be measuring is the improvement of the conversion rate, the improvement of the win rate, 
A lot of our customers want to increase the number of products sold per account. Right now, they're selling only one product per account, but they've got five products. They want to try to sell two or three of, it's like saying, do you want fries with that? But they just don't say it. They never say, hey, by the way, do you want fries with that? Yeah, we would like some fries. Throw that in, you know? So they can dramatically impact revenue by doing simple little things like that. But you got to have a definition of good. You have to have coaches aligned on the purpose is not just more, 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 more. The purpose is biggest business impact relative to the calories burned. I don't want to burn as many calories, but I want to create a lot of coaching impact for business in terms of something I can measure. And I got to get the reps to buy in. This is the other big thing is we see that the coaching paradigm at a lot of these companies has flipped. So what I mean by that, everyone says sales call coaching. And immediately everybody always thinks the same thing. It is the sales manager's job to coach. It's all on the shoulders of the sales manager. And actually, I listened to the podcast you did with Mark Casaglow from Outreach, buddy of mine. Yep. And he said, who owns the development of the rep? It's the rep. It's the, and it has to be because they have to, they have to buy in. I mean, with my, we were talking about our kids with my, with my kids, if, if they buy in and want to do something, they'll do it. My wife, I mean, I'm sure, you know, like, they, people value more what they conclude for themselves and what they're told. So if you have a group, you create the environment as a coach. If you create an environment where, where you're in that environment, people are, you know, encouraged to improve and, and they give, given every opportunity, they have a clear definition of good and then get them to actually listen to one of their own calls a week. And this is a big aha that we saw in our data in our system. We would look at we would measure and look at what does it look like for people who will listen to other people's calls compared to listen to their own calls. And it turns out listening to other people's calls is still good, but even if you listen to one of your own calls a week for two months and then score it based on that framework of good. So score it based on that rubric of this is what good looks like. If reps buy into doing that for two months, for eight weeks, it will transform the onboarding time. We're talking about 30, 40% shorter onboarding ramp times because they hear it, they want to change, they conclude it for themselves, and now the coach is supporting it. And it's okay. a very, very different paradigm. Okay, so you just said something, and I want to, I want to draw this point out just, just straight up. Uh, what I'm hearing you say is one of the ways that we can get reps to better internalize coaching is have it be their own thing, but also... Um, you know, people change when it's their change. When it's theirs, they do, right? I've got that locked and loaded. There's another major paradigm shift that needs to happen. And you, you've mentioned several times the metrics that are used, right? What's being measured? Most sales leaders measure the, the output, right? What was my sales output or, you know, how, what was our sales result? results? Results, right? Yep. And you're saying, what I'm hearing you say kind of in here is, no to that and yes to another thing, which are behaviors that are like lead measures. So the difference between a, a lead or a laggard measure. Am I, am I following yep, you right? You got your leading metrics and you get your lagging metrics. And actually there's a real, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a shout out on this one. There is the book, Cracking the Sales Management Code from Michelle Vazana and Jason Jordan, who actually both happen to be in the, the Northern Virginia area near me. And in that book, they talk about all these sales metrics. They did this analysis of 207 sales metrics from all these companies and they put them in the buckets and they said, okay, you have results metrics, which to your point are lag. They tell you what happened yesterday. I can't wave a magic wand and get better sales results. It's that it's too late. 
Then you've got on the other end of the spectrum are activity metrics. And historically activity metrics are like, you know, calls, dials, number, number of new prospects identified, those kinds of things, depending on the role. If you're a, you know, like a customer success account management person, it'll be like the number of, uh, you know, client checking calls that are completed. That type. And then there's these ones in the middle. So you directly, by the way, directly control and impact the activity metrics. But then there's this one in the middle they call objectives. And objectives are kind of funny that you can kind of control, but you kind of can't. And, and, and an example, if, if there's cold calling happening, an example would be, well, the number of dials that you make is a classic example of an activity, right? Okay. Now you do that activity to have, for what objective? The objective of making those calls is to have conversations with the prospects. They're unscheduled, unexpected conversations, but you have conversations would be an objective. And then what's the result? Completed appointments or maybe opportunities created in the pipeline. It's other framework they call ROA, results, objectives, activities. So to your point, one of the activities we're seeing sales teams measuring now that they never measured before is the topics that are happening in the call. So if, if there is this vocabulary that's present or not present, if I look, and I tell you what, I, I look at ours and it's, it's remarkable. We have some of our account executives that we have one called Quantify the Impact. And quantify the impacts all about the ROI and the number of products sold per account, conversion rate, win rate, all this stuff. And, and the, the top reps, they're, they're doing that 60, 70% of their calls. They're hitting that note of the jazz. They're using that vocabulary. The bottom reps, 10, 5%, 0%. They never do it at all. So there are these, there are these very specific behaviors that if you're, if you're doing them, if the reps are doing them, they translate into bigger conversion rates and bigger win rates and bigger deal sizes and all these wonderful financial metrics that are results metrics, they're lagging indicators. This is a leading indicator. So the conversation intelligence industry that I'm in with these other players is we're, we're really pioneering that whole like, you know, there, a sales activity is how you do your calls. How do you conduct your conversation is as much of a measurable sales activity as the number of emails sent or the number of dials. Mm. Okay. So I, I, I love this. So the metric matters. This is a, a new, sh a new shift, a new change. And we've talked through some, some excellent things for both reps and sales coaches. I want to shift gears just slightly, um, go, go deeper into the coaching issue. So I was reading an, uh, a recent article by training industry which we can link, by the way, in the show notes uh, for those listeners that want to read this article, we'll, we'll link it. It mentions that sales coaching is often influenced by interpersonal dynamics between the coach and the sales rep, right? Yep. Which introduces coaching bias, right? Yep. Um, so how can you eliminate coaching bias? I want to shift gears and focus here. How yep. can we eliminate this coaching bias that may come from interpersonal relationships between the rep and the coach? Yeah. And, 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 you know, one of them we talked about already, which is that definition of good, because then it's objective, not subjective. That's key. But I'm going to give you something entirely different. We have not talked about Ryan so far, which is, um, you, you know, the adage, we've all heard the adage, it takes a village to raise a child. Indeed, indeed, I have. I'm sure we all have. And I think, you know, you're kind of in the same situation I am. I'm, I'm around, we're fortunate. We've got a lot of neighbors around here and everything. We're just kind of looking after each other's kids and it's good, you know, and, and I tell them, parent my kids, like, you don't have to worry about it, you know, like, now, corporate executive board did some fascinating research on this, where they looked at, and it was, it, it was published in HBR, I can get the link so we can send it over, Please, and they yes. called it the connector manager. 
So, so what they did is, you know how in the challenger research, they do the whole lone wolf versus challenger. They kind of have four personas, if you will, of salespeople. They did the four personas of coaches. And, and it turns out that the, the best performing coaches are not the coaches that just have a one-on-one relationship with the person receiving the coach where the, where the, where the, the mentee has only one coach. So it's actually better for the person receiving the coaches, the mentee, if you will, to have multiple coaches and input from multiple people. Hence the term, the connector manager. What they talk about in the research is these connector managers don't just say, hey, Ryan, go talk to Shannon. You know, good luck, bye. But rather the connector managers are making that connection based on something that you're gonna be working on. Shannon has the right subject matter expertise for that. You're going to go set up a series of meetings with Shannon, and then you're going to come back and we're going to close the loop on, on specifically what did you learn? How did you apply it? So it's called the connector manager. And, I, and by the way, this is, a, this is a really, really key point. Some of our, our customers, some of the things they'll do are they'll actually do manager swapping, which I've seen be very, very effective. Because if you think about it, let's say you have a sales organization of 50 reps, okay? You probably have five managers that have 10 reps each. That's a very common hierarchy. Yeah. Pretty standard, right? Pretty calm, right? Now, some of those managers are going to have, let's say three out of those 10 reps are kind of on autopilot doing real well. You're going to have like five of them that are really the targets for that coaching and then a couple of low performers, right? The five that are the targets of that coaching, maybe like two or three of those five are performing or are responding well to the coaching of their direct manager, but maybe two of them are not. Also very common. What should you do? Swap those people with another manager, play that connector manager role, go talk to a fellow peer manager. Hey, do you have any people who you're working with? that's just not, you're not, they're not getting better. Yeah. I got a couple. Yeah. I got a couple too. Swap them. You know what I mean? Like that show, they have like the husband and wife swap. They used to have on ABC, like that kind of thing. And I'll tell you, it's remarkable. It works, works very, very well. So that's a very concrete thing you can do. Another concrete thing you can do is small group coaching, especially a second level leader. So let me describe that. Second level leader, sales leaders are the people who manage the sales managers. They're the second level. The sales managers have the reps under them. So going back to the, we talked about, I want to burn fewer calories to create a bigger impact. All right, we all agree. How would I do that? Well, if it's my boss's boss, I'm probably going to sit up in my chair a little bit more. You know what I mean? I'm probably not going to blow that meeting off. If I have to do prep work to like listen to a call prior and score it, I'm probably going to do it. So what the second level leaders will do is they'll say, hey, Every two weeks, I will meet with a group of, let's call it five or six. So it's a group coaching session. Five or six of these B players that are in the middle of the bell curve, we can really shift them. These are all people that want to get better. If we map them on skill, will, they're the kind of people that they fall into like the coach me bucket. They're trying to improve. They haven't checked out. And if I'm a second level leader and I work with six of these people, and even if I'm only working with them every other week for 30 minutes, I'm creating three hours of coaching, people coaching time with 30 minutes of my time. So it's not that hard. I can commit to that on my schedule. I can stick to that. Versus if I was going to work with all six of those people individually, forget it. I, I, I would be rescheduling it constantly. I never have time to do it. And, and here's what it also has a wonderful unintended effect. So the unintended effect is the people who were not invited, because this is an invitation. So coaching is a privilege, not a right. And I really wish people would absorb that. 
especially when it comes to sales. We believe that sales coaching is somehow, you know, like yeah, everyone's supposed to receive sales coaching. And again, we sort of act like it's like a right, like air. You know what I mean? Or, get, or receiving a territory. As a salesperson, you're going to receive a territory and you, are, you will receive sales coaching. Well, again, if they don't want to be coached and they don't want to improve, why should we give them sales coaching? You know what I mean? So, so what we see instead is by having people who were kind of rejecting coaching before not being invited to the session where their boss's boss, the second level leader is doing it, then they start to go, hey, I heard that you're doing this session with these six people. How come I'm not there? Oh, well, Ryan, help me, help me understand or correct me if I'm wrong, but the last time that we did a call coaching session, you said you didn't want it. You told me you don't want to change, right? I mean, you said it to me. You said, I think this was a waste of time. So do you want to be involved or not? Look, we want you involved. We want you in the canoe rowing in the same direction with us. If you want to be in the canoe rowing in the same direction with us. And then here's the other thing. Don't take something away from the reps. This is another mistake I've seen people do. I've seen people, they try to tie call coaching to the variable component of the comp plan. Bad idea. You're going to create a mutiny on the ship. Instead, tie it to career path. Tie it to something that's extra, to the cherry on top of the Sunday, if you will, to the gravy. Don't tie it to the, you know, your base salary and your, because you might have a person who performs really well, who hits their quota consistently. They kind of do it their way. They're a little bit of a lone wolf. They don't want to be involved in coaching. They don't want to do internal meetings. I want to get my job done as few hours as possible and I'll help you guys make money. Great. There's nothing wrong with that. There is nothing wrong with that. If that rep is not giving other reps a hard time, you know what you do? Leave them be, quarantine them over here, and then let them ask you for coaching versus you going and telling them because anytime you offer coaching, they say no. So I love that. And you said mutiny. Uh, I actually have a, a pirate flag up on my wall because I call it creating pirates. Yep. Um, and ultimately, uh, pirates typically don't get into the pirate business because they choose piracy. Uh, they get into the pirate business because that might be the only place that, that they can go. And oftentimes they're pushed there by people unintentionally. Yeah. Um, so we don't want to create pirates out of our salespeople. I love that. Okay. So we're, we're winding up our conversation here. We've, we've talked through just powerful insights for both the, in, uh, the individual sales rep and also for sales coaches. Give me that, let's, let's land the final punch here. Um, if you had, if you could leave our listeners with just maybe one final piece of advice, Steve, you know, what, what's that one thing? Terrible question. Terrible question. I know. No, 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 no. Not at all. Not at all. It's actually a very, very good question. Okay. Here's the final piece of advice. Pick. Okay. So if you're a sales rep, a manager, a second level leader, enablement, revenue operations, I don't care. Anybody in the revenue, you know, organization, pick one behavior, pick one thing that you would either personally like to improve, or maybe your team needs to improve on their calls. So it's a very, very simple question to write this down, think about it, talk to other people about it. What, if you could get your reps, here's the question. If you can get your reps to do one thing consistently, what would it be on their calls, right? So if you get them saying one thing consistently or asking certain questions consistently, or, um, you know, even things like active listening, right? Now, active listening, funny enough, is actually as much about what you're saying is what you're not saying. It's not just being quiet, not interrupting. It's also, hey, Ryan, let me make sure I got that right. 
So, but if I could get them consistent on one thing, what would it be? And if you do that, by the way, and if you, you pull together your leadership team and your management team, and if everybody has a different answer, that's probably where I'd start because that means we don't really know. We don't really have a sense. You might be a good candidate for some conversation intelligence technology. You might not, but either way, you got to at least be able to come at it from a place where I know that one thing we need to be better at consistently. And I know where people are relative to that, or I have a pretty good feeling. Cause if you don't know that, you don't know where the gap is. You don't know where the gap is in the first place. You got to know where the gap is and then we can go about closing it. Love that. Steve, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for the time today and for the conversation and, and imparting some of your wisdom with, with our listeners. Really appreciate it. Uh, Ryan, thanks a lot. Sorry for talking you off. And everyone check out, I do free tips of the day on LinkedIn. So if you connect with me on LinkedIn, you'll get a little uh, free one minute tip every day about sales. Okay. And just plugging that further, uh, those tips are fun. They're usually involved. And I've watched many of them. Many of them usually involve Steve running someplace and or a headband. So, you know, check out those tips, team. Thanks again, Steve. Thanks, Ryan. And listeners, for more from Primary Intelligence and our friends at ExecVision, make sure to check out the show notes at primary-intel.com forward slash podcast. And don't forget to subscribe and share so that you never miss an episode. And we'll see you next time.